Good morning. It is Monday, June 3rd, 7.16 a.m. I hope you all had a good weekend. Uh, Mine was fairly busy and active as usual. Um, I went with Paulina to the Alameda Flea Market to shop this time instead of selling. Um, It was pleasant to walk around. We walked the entire flea market. Um, I found a few things. I've been doing really good at my other sources, so I didn't go crazy. There wasn't anything too too delightful there, but it, it was all fun fun stuff to look at, fun to hang out with Paulina. Um, yeah, so and then I uh, read tarot at the needles and pens afterwards. Um, yeah, just been going to bed early a lot and realigning my sleep schedule. Um, I basically finally am starting to sleep well. And so having a full night's sleep is one of the best things in the world. <laughs> that's all I can say. It feels great. So I don't mind going to bed early if that's what it takes. So... Yeah, I've been on a Singapore noodles kick, and I should probably get off of it. (laughs) Um, But I figured out how to make them, and it's one of my favorite dishes. Uh, Basically, make sure that your curry powder has MSG in it. Um, You can use any kind of meat that you have lying around and just chop it up small. I had ground pork and I seasoned that with some garlic and some chili peppers. Next time I'm going to add ginger to that. And then I diced some bell peppers and green onions and regular onions. And had a few other things. Oh, carrots. I julienned some carrots and threw that in too. And I had bean thread noodles, which I highly recommend the bean thread noodles because the next day you can eat the dish cold and it's delicious. Bean thread noodles don't harden in the fridge. You know how when you make pasta or something and then it's not quite as good the next day? Not so with bean thread noodles. They stay, um, they stay soft and and of a good texture. Another type of noodle that works is japchae noodles. Those uh, Korean sweet potato noodles. Anyway, it's a very easy dish to make. Add your add your uh, curry powder in stages. So. Start out with a mild a mild spice drop um, when you add the vegetables. And then do another spice drop after the vegetables have kind of gone down a little bit with the pork. And then after you've cooked your noodles, add your third and largest spice drop. Um, I didn't really use any oil. I just used basically the the fat from the, the ground pork or what kept the you know kept everything going um this could obviously be made vegan too just take the pork out and uh, marinate hard 
tofu. Make sure you drain the tofu first. Add a little bit of lime juice and a little tiny bit of soy sauce to your taste. I would go really easy on the soy sauce. Crumble up the the hardened the hard firm tofu. Crumble it up and kind of sprinkle the lime juice on it. That's how you're going to get it in there. And then a little bit of the soy sauce. Let it sit for about an hour or so in the fridge. And then add your ginger and garlic at that point to it. Anyway, can you tell I like the damn noodles? <laughs> uh, moving forward, I wanted to talk about another element of choice that women have had to fight for. The other side of, of, of choice and it involves a health movement in America that started in the early 1900s, eugenics. I'm sure you all have heard of it by now. Uh, it was, the, the goal was seemingly altruistic, but had really dire consequences. Um, and it, it started with various doctors and health enthusiasts and you know social activists coming together and with the goal of breeding out undesirable human qualities in people uh this was in in part due to uh a deep, deeply embedded and ingrained uh, racism and classism that existed. It was a huge backlash against immigrate immigration populaces, immigrant populace, populaces. Uh, they were being blamed for a lot of for the bulk of of um, you know generational degeneration. <laughs> generations of degenerates uh they were the and and also due to the uh, large uh pockets of impoverished people uh generally uh, known as white trash and the appalachians and the lower southern states you know you have your gulf southern states uh they would pay these, the eugenicists organizations would pay field researchers about, I think it was 70, like a stipend of like $75 a month to go door to door and, and have different uh, surveys and studies and tests. And they would ask them all, all manner of questions some of them, some of the questions were, you know, is there incest in your family? Are there alcoholics in your family? Uh, how, you know, what is the infant mortality rate? How many of your children have uh, been, uh, you have lived, you know, to adulthood or past, made it past infancy? Uh, you know, how, how many of your children are, are uh, mentally challenged? 
Uh, This is around the time that the term moron came into uh, play, which now that's kind of, you know, it's, it's kind of a off the cuff insult, like, wow, what a moron. But then it was a diagnosis uh, based on low intelligence scores. That came from the eugenicist movement. They went into mental institutions. They went into prisons. They went into the slums that had large immigrant populations. Around, kind of, I guess around the Edwardian era, in the 1910s, immigration dropped off severely to about 97, down 97% due to a prevailing belief in eugenics. Uh, By default, some good things came about. Uh, Planned Parenthood, as we know it, was was founded uh, via Margaret Sanger, who was was a very uh, vocal eugenicist. You know, these people had the best of intentions. And in some in some ways, you know, not having fifteen children when you live in a in a shack is probably a real a real good idea. You know, having options for birth control is is a great idea. Uh, it, it does keep you from becoming destitute if you're already poor, or you know, <laughs> even if you're not already poor. Uh, I look back at my ancestry, my personal ancestry, and I have, thanks to the internet, access to uh, different um, different family records, like via the census. And on my dad's side of the family. Those are the type of people that would be getting these sorts of visits, okay? They were white trash. They were the original white trash, the indentured servants that came over from England, Ireland, Scotland. The human, the human trash who were indigent scumbags and lowlifes and nobodies and unwanted members of society, what they would do is when the prisons got too crowded, they would ship them off to Virginia in the colonies to work as indentured servants in, in, the, in the lower colonies. And they did all the, all the hard they were expected to do all the hard labor, expected to do all the hard labor uh, and, and to, to work in indentured servitude, basically enslaved, um, as an option instead of being in prison. So basically forced hard labor in, in, the, new, in the new world uh, for, for the colonizers, to work for the colonizers. So uh, some, of the ans- some of my ancestors have been in in America since about the 17th century. Uh, Here's the thing though, when you take people who are lazy and 
you know, underprivileged, with a lack of resources, no motivation to work because they have no options. That's what creates the laziness. When you take people who have never, never done any sort of quote, honest work, except for stealing, selling their bodies, gambling, running numbers, drinking, just forgetting it all and just drinking all day. And you take them and you put them in a different country and expect them to work, guess what they're going to do? They're going to do all the same shit that they did in the other country there. Especially if you force them to work as an indentured servant. So what ended up happening is my ancestors. (laughs) One thing that they did not stop doing was continue to procreate. uh, Because they're human beings, after all. And... Some of them did rise above their circumstances through very, very hard work and perseverance. The white trash are given the worst land and the worst of everything. The worst jobs and... and, uh, they they could never rise up in in a place in in a true place in society and therefore they there it created a a general mood of of depression amongst amongst them and uh, that pretty much drove them to drink well the eugenicists believe that that the alcoholism and inbreeding and the schizophrenia and all the things that my family members had at the time, my ancestors had, that those were inherited traits that that they couldn't be, um, that that it didn't have anything to do with opportunities that they would have received in a different environment, that that didn't have an effect on them. I think back about my uh, my great grandma. Beulah Ockletree, who was paranoid schizophrenic, lived through the Great Depression. Uh, she was in her early 40s by the time the Great Depression rolled around. She had four children. She herself was an alcoholic, also with her, her fits of paranoid delusion. I could just see them knocking on her door in some shack in West Virginia and checking up on her and through some cunning she must have found a way to stave them off because she was a prime candidate uh, my grandpa and and uh and his siblings uh they all ended up in group homes and orphanages uh, during the worst years of the Great Depression, they ended up going to Michigan uh, to find work uh, because there was absolutely nothing, nothing for them left in West Virginia. There was there was kind of a famine, and and the Great Depression was at its at, at its most cruel for the people at the bottom of the totem pole. Don't get me wrong, this woman was 
later in later in later years as the person who ended up raising my father proved to be herself very cruel but I know that in that moment she must have if she at any point encountered one of these social workers how scared she must have been that they were going to take her babies away from her and that they were going to put her in a mental institution because she was all pretty already pretty far gone she was a pretty notorious miser she was known as being being the neighborhood crazy lady uh in in Detroit in in Royal Oak Michigan when they moved there um and and later down the road when she was raising my my dad and two of his siblings there were times when social workers would come to her door in the 60s and check up on her and that family situation um there had been reports of severe abuse and neglect and she was able to stave them off then so i feel that there's a chance that she might have had to stave them off back then and there is a long line of of alcoholism and and uh and and abuse on that side of the family and those were just the type of people that the eugenicists wanted to sterilize and eradicate they wanted ideally a nordic ideal body ideal how many times can i say ideal right they ideally <laughs> they wanted a nordic a nordic bloodline and the reason their reasoning was that that the nordic bloodline was the latest to evolve okay and so therefore it was the purest that was their that was their cockamamie thinking okay and and if you look you look into uh you know the pigident uh number 45 that's what he is that's his line of thinking as well it's pretty bass backwards we're going to flash forward to 1936 and and talk about how eugenics was in was fully a part of the collective consciousness of the American socio-political climate. I want to bring present to you the case of Ann Cooper Hewitt, the sterilized heiress. Jean Fowler, a humorist and columnist for the New York Daily Mirror, wrote this funny little rhyme about her. I'm only a sterilized heiress, a butt for the laughter of rubes. I'm comely and rich, but a venomous bitch. My mother ran off with my tubes. This is in reference to Anne's forced sterilization, salpingectomy, as it was known, uh, via her mother, Marion Brugere Cooper Hewitt. 
See, Anne was the heiress of a $10 million fortune, two-thirds of that fortune, to be precise. Okay, so about seven, seven and a half million, I'm, I'm guessing, or seven million. Let's do seven million. Seven million in 1930s money, which today would probably be about almost a hundred million dollars uh in great depression times though that was unheard of wealth she was at the very upper crust of the one percent if i can if there was even a one percent back then she was at the very 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 top of the heap and this this in and of itself goes in direct contradiction to eugenic theory There was a proviso in her uh, in in her father's will, which said, if Anne died childless, then Marion, the mother, would inherit Anne's fortune. Before the age of twenty one was still essentially the age of of a minor. Back then, she was still technically under her mother's guardianship her mother had access to her to Anne's money which she used uh she proliferated through gambling and buying jewels and going to you know the Riviera and in different places on on a constant circuit she was extravagantly um opulent in her spending so about eight months before Anne's 21st birthday, her appendix burst. And she, she went in to a San Francisco hospital for the, for the appendix surgery. Uh, Miriam's mother was a, was a San Francisco native, and we'll get into that as well. And when she was kind of coming to after the operation... Her, she was being questioned of really, really, really strange questions. Um, what's the longest river? Who's, who's the, you know, the fifth president? And she thought that was really strange. And she, she is quoted as saying, why are you asking me these asinine questions? Here's why, here's why they were asking it, because they were trying to, they were trying to get it, get evidence that she needed to be sterilized, that she was mentally feeble. Um, and that is when they, that is when they sterilized her. So pardon me, I, th- I think I mentioned that she received the questioning after she had her appendectomy, it was before her appendectomy, but she had been put under, so she was a little groggy. She had, they they surmised that she had the intelligence of an 11-year-old, and this was based on a battery of these intelligence tests that she was subjected to. Uh, these tests were overseen by Tilton Tillman and Samuel G. Boyd, perform the sterilization 
and somehow in between this she figured out that she was she had been sterilized um what ended up happening is she sued her mother and the two surgeons for $500,000 uh they were arrested initially for a felony uh, and the felony was known as mayhem, basically dabbling where they shouldn't have been been dabbling and achieving this surgery through sketchy means. Tillman's argument was that he was going by California law. The California law allowed sterilization of a subject if they were in a home for the feeble-minded. And his proviso was where the family has sufficient means, the feeble-minded person is taken care of at home, but the situation's the same. How convenient for him that he was also a member of the San Francisco Lunacy Commission. (laughs) That is such a... That's a ridiculous organization name. It came out that Marion paid Tilton $8,000 to form this diagnosis. So she she did her research. She found out. She she probably contacted him. He knew her as a fabulously wealthy and semi-famous uh, heiress and, I mean, not heiress, uh, well, kind of, socialite. Kind of like if Paris Hilton came up to you and said, hey, can you declare Nikki insane for me? I'll give you $64,000 because that's what it would be in today's money. She would probably have to bribe him with more now, you know, considering that eugenics isn't as strong as it was then. Even though it seems to be making a comeback. Um, Samuel Boyd, who performed the operation, didn't speak of the nature of the operation because he was afraid it might cause harm to the girl's future. This was at the height of the Great Depression, okay? And these ha- people have money to throw around. Uh, Anne, Anne Cooper Hewitt actually came under some heat herself. And her morals were brought into question as evidence of being feeble-minded. You see, if you were... Um, sexually promiscuous or even perceived as being sexually promiscuous you could be put into a home for the feeble-minded quote feeble-minded okay you could be institutionalized if your family member who had guardianship over you even suspected you of having premarital sex if they wanted to do that um she she the mother marion her her reasoning for for this diagnosis her reasoning of the sterilization apart from wanting her money was and scandalous scandalous behavior and erotic tendencies and that she had to buy back some naughty letters from her uh from someone who had bribed bribed her with them uh, she said that she was easily infatuated by men in uniform and 
that she had also been suspected of having an interracial affair with a uh, a black server then known as a porter on on a train which turned out to be false she basically said that her mother was was projecting onto her uh, her own uh, her own fetish for men in uniform and that Marion was merely being polite So here's the here's the other thing that's another twist in this plot. Anne was born out of wedlock. How ironic. How ironic that Marion was getting on this moral high horse when she herself was, you know, to use the lingo, a perpetrator of moral torpitude. Or she herself could have been a candidate for this surgery, according to her own lingo and logic. You see, Marion didn't come from the most illustrious beginnings. Marion was the daughter of a carriage driver in San Francisco. They most likely lived in Soma. And they lived above a grocery store. She was from very humble beginnings. And she lucked into seducing her first husband, Pedar Brugier. She met him at 16, married him at 18. And he was a California millionaire. And he was from the oldest and wealthiest family, one of the oldest and wealthiest society families in New York. And so she ended up moving to New York with him. She pretended that she was a Southern Belle from Virginia, an aristocratic family in Virginia. And uh, she just married her way up. She married a stockbroker. That failed. And then she met Peter Cooper Hewitt, probably at some grand ball, the tail end of the Bella Polk era. He was the grandson of Peter Cooper, who founded Cooper Union. He also invented Jell-O. He inverted, invented this first steam locomotive. He had iron foundries, the first iron foundries, all over the country. His son-in-law, for, the short, for a short time, was the mayor of New York City and the father of the subway system. Peter, Peter Cooper Hewitt formed an electric company with George Westinghouse, and he had many inventions himself. One of them, namely, was uh, known as a mercury vapor lamp, tube lamp, the the proto-fluorescent lamp as we know it. I personally am not a fan of fluorescent lighting, but it is useful in certain situations and and uh it's nice to have a, a a light that bright so at the time the mercury vapor lamp uh was the brightest light that you could get and it was used in early film production the films that the early films that we see now probably could not have been executed in the way that we see them were it not for those lights 
he was swept off his feet by Marion, and he had a very hot and heavy affair with her, uh, producing Anne, the love child. Okay. Anne was born in 1914. Marion and Peter married in 1918. Now, by law, even though... Uh, Anne's parents married, she was still considered, quote, illegitimate. Those were, that's the lingo. She was born out of wedlock. So he had to adopt his own daughter in order to uh, grant her the rights of a child born under wedlock. And that helped, that made it so that she was able to inherit his fortune. And Anne ended up having more skin in the game than Marion because Anne had that precious Cooper blood, okay? There, the, uh, let's see here, was it, I believe? So Peter's, Peter had two unmarried aunts, okay? I think Elaine, Elizabeth and Elaine, I believe were their names. They ended up founding the Cooper Hewitt, the Cooper Union Museum in New York. And they were, they had many, many educational opportunities that were not afforded to women of that age. So Anne came from a background of intellectuals and philanthropists and inventors. That doesn't really sound like your typical candidate for sterilization, does it? She herself, Anne Cooper Hewitt, was fluent in three languages. She could speak French and Italian with the best of them. She was very well read. She read all the great classics. They, that was just part of her basic training. We're not even getting into her common in, her 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 passions. We're talking about her basic training, and despite her you know, getting expelled from a couple of very prestigious girls' schools, she still got a damn good education because in the interim, she was, she was, uh, she had tutors. That doesn't sound like she has, she has arrested development, in my opinion. So, the trial was just too much for Marion. And she fled to New York from SF, and she registered at the Plaza Hotel under an assumed name, Miss Jane, Mrs. Jane Merritt. And she was found in a New Jersey hospital due to a suicide attempt. She was convalescing in a sanitarium. So I don't know if that would... Uh, constitute being feeble-minded but she was basically in the wealthy version of that she put her she checked herself in okay um because she was suddenly getting a lot of unwanted media attention Anne could have pressed really pressed these criminal charges towards her mother her mother could have ended up in prison for what she did okay but since Marion was convalescing at the time, she decided to settle out of court. 
And that's where the $500,000 comes in. And she settled for $150,000. After the judge ruled the entire case closed, the two surgeons were let go. They were sent back to practice in San Francisco as if nothing happened. And the judge's reasoning was that it was a frivolous drain upon public finances. It was holding up the courtroom where there were other more pressing cases at the time. These are wealthy people, okay? Everything they do is a matter of spectacle just by virtue of them being rich. Because it's such an anomaly. You might as well have three tits. You know what I mean? Because everybody else was just trying to get by. Everyone else was just scraping by. The Dust Bowl was sweeping people through, turning their farmlands into deserts. They were living in shacks. They had cardboard shoes. They had nothing. Nothing. And a lot of people used the used this uh, big news story as a means of escaping for a moment their own pitiful lives. So yeah, the case was let go because it was just a, such a media sensation. The mother and daughter were both quite beautiful. I, I actually think Marion uh, was more beautiful than Anne. Uh, Marion started out as a Gibson girl and, and ended up looking like a milfy flapper. She ended up dying three years later. She died in, I think, 1939 at age 55 due, due to all the stress and she died of a brain hemorrhage. A few years later... Anne started in on her first marriage. She married a mechanic from Oakland. Nice choice, Anne. And uh, I'm not being facetious, you know. She did like men in uniform. And both, both women were married about six times each. Anne died in 1956 of a a brain aneurysm. So that's pretty interesting that they both died of of these brain issues. Also, it calls into question feeble-mindedness, does it not? And another thing is how far how far are we going to take this eugenics thing? Just kill everybody? Cuz you know what, at the end of the day nobody's perfect. And this is America, and this is the this is the one place. This is how this is part of the optics of what it's supposed to be. Here's the American dream. This is the one place where you get a chance to make it, even if you are white trash, even if you didn't choose to be here, even if nobody wants you. You get a chance to make it. You can prove them all wrong, if you work your ass off. But you know what? Things like this, like eugenics, 
they undercut the American dream because they don't give people a chance to come here and to explore that and achieve that. And another thing about the American dream that feeds into it is once you get up to the top and you forget where you came from, then you are less likely to give other people a chance because you don't want them to take what you had. And when you're still at the bottom, you're fighting for your little scrap of the bottom and you get resentful and you try to push someone under you, have someone to despise and look down upon. And that's another thing that tears down the American dream. Basically, eugenics bad. (laughs) I hope that you guys have a wonderful week. I really enjoyed presenting this fascinating story to you. And if I get any more info on it, I will pass it on. Take care. Bye-bye.